Section 9 of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume 1, by Albert Hubbard. John Ruskin, Part 2. We walked up the steps, and my friend let the brass knocker drop just once, for only Americans give a rat-a-tat-tat. And the door was opened by a white-whiskered butler, who took our cards and ushered us into the library. My heart beat a trifle fast as I took inventory of the room, for I never before had called on a man who was believed to have refused the poet laureateship. A dimly lighted room was this library, walls painted brown running up to mellow yellow at the ceiling, high bookshelves with a stepladder, and only five pictures on the walls, and of these, three were etchings, and two watercolors of a very simple sort. Leather-covered chairs, a long table in the center, on which were strewn sundry magazines and papers, also several photographs, and at one end of the room a big fireplace, where a yew-log smoldered. Here my inventory was cut short by a cheery voice behind. Ah, now, gentlemen, I am glad to see you. There was no time, nor necessity, for a formal introduction. The great man took my hand as if he had always known me, as perhaps he thought he had. Then he greeted my friend in the same way, stirred up the fire, for it was a North of England summer day, and took a seat by the table. We were all silent for a space, a silence without embarrassment. You are looking at the etching over the fireplace. It was sent to me by a young lady in America, said Mr. Ruskin, and I placed it there to get acquainted with it. I like it more and more. Do you know the scene? I knew the scene, and explained somewhat about it. Mr. Ruskin has the faculty of making his interviewer do most of the talking. He is a rare listener, and leans forward, putting a hand behind his right ear to catch each word you say. He was particularly interested in the industrial conditions of America, and I soon found myself occupying the time, while an occasional word of interrogation from Mr. Ruskin gave me no chance to stop. I came to hear him, not to defend our Republican experiment, as he was pleased to call the United States of America. Yet Mr. Ruskin was so gentle and respectful in his manner, and so complimentary in his attitude of listener, that my impatience at his want of sympathy for our experiment only caused me to feel a little heated. The fact of women being elected to mayoralties in Kansas makes me think of certain African tribes that exalt their women into warriors. You want your women to fight your political battles. You evidently hold the same opinion on the subject of equal rights that you expressed some years ago, interposed my companion. What did I say? Really, I have forgotten. You replied to a correspondent, saying, You are certainly right as to my views respecting the female franchise. So far from wishing to give votes to women, I would fain take them away from most men. Surely that was a sensible answer. My respect for women is too great to force on her increased responsibilities. Then, as for restricting the franchise with men, I am of the firm conviction that no man should be allowed to vote who does not own property, or who cannot do considerably more than read and write. The voter makes the laws, and why should the laws regulating the holding of property be made by a man who has no interest in property beyond a covetous desire? Or why should he legislate on education when he possesses none? Then again, women do not bear arms to protect the state. But what do you say to Mrs. Carlock, who answers that inasmuch as men do not bear children, they have no right to vote, going to war possibly being necessary, and possibly not, 
but the perpetuity of the state demanding that someone bear children. The lady's argument is ingenious, but lacks force when we consider that the bearing of arms is a matter relating to statecraft, while the baby question is Dame Nature's own, and not to be regulated even by the sovereign. Then Mr. Ruskin talked for nearly fifteen minutes on the duty of the state to the individual, talked very deliberately, but with the clearness and force of a man who believes what he says, and says what he believes. Thus my friend, by a gentle thrust under the fifth rib of Mr. Ruskin's logic, caused him to come to the rescue of his previously expressed opinions, and we had the satisfaction of hearing him discourse earnestly and eloquently. Maiden ladies usually have an opinion ready on the subject of masculine methods, and conversely, much of the world's logic on the woman question has come from the bachelor brain. Mr. Ruskin went quite out of his way on several occasions in times past to attack John Stuart Mill for heresy in opening up careers for women other than that of wife and mother. When Mill did not answer Mr. Ruskin's newspaper letters, the author of Sesame and Lilies called him a cretinous wretch, and referred to him as the man of no imagination. Mr. Mill may have been a cretinous wretch, I do not exactly understand the phrase, but the preface to On Liberty is at once the tenderest, highest, and most sincere compliment paid to a woman of which I know. The life of Mr. and Mrs. John Stuart Mill shows that perfect mating is possible, yet Mr. Ruskin has only scorned for the opinions of Mr. Mill on a subject which Mill came as nearly personally solving, in a matrimonial experiment, as any other public man of modern times, not excepting even Robert Browning. Therefore we might suppose Mr. Mill entitled to speak on the woman question, and I intimated as much to Mr. Ruskin. He might know all about one woman, and if he should regard her as a sample of all womankind, would he not make a great mistake? I was silenced. In Fourth Clavagera, letter 59, the author says, I never wrote a letter in my life which all the world is not welcome to read. From this, one might imagine that Mr. Ruskin never loved. No pressed flowers in books, no passages of poetry double-marked and scored, no bundles of letters faded in yellow, sacred for his own eye, tied with white or dainty blue ribbon, no little nothings hidden away in the bottom of a trunk. And yet Mr. Ruskin has his ideas on the woman question, and very positive ideas they are, too, often sweetly sympathetic and wisely helpful. I see that one of the encyclopedias mentions Ruskin as a bachelor, which is giving rather an extended meaning to the word, for although Mr. Ruskin married, he was not mated. According to Collingwood's account, this marriage was a quiet arrangement between parents. Anyway, the genius is like the profligate in this. When he marries, he generally makes a woman miserable. And misery is reactionary as well as infectious. Ruskin is a genius. Genius is unique. No satisfactory analysis of it has yet been given. We know a few of its indications. That's all. First among them is an ability to concentrate. No seed can sow genius. No soil can grow it. Its quality is inborn and defies both cultivation and extermination. To be surpassed is never pleasant. To feel your inferiority is to feel a pang. Seldom is there a person great enough to find satisfaction in the success of a friend. The pleasure that excellence gives is oft tinted by resentment. And so the woman who marries a genius is usually unhappy. Genius is excess. It is obstructive to little plans. It is difficult to warm yourself at a conflagration. The tempest may blow you away. The sun dazzles. Lightning seldom strikes gently. The Nile overflows. 
genius has its times of straying off into the infinite and then what is the good wife to do for companionship does she protest and find fault it could not be otherwise for genius is dictatorial without knowing it obstructive without wishing to be intolerant unawares and unsocial because it cannot help it the wife of a genius sometimes takes his fits of abstraction for stupidity and having the man's interest at heart she endeavors to arouse him from his lethargy by chiding him occasionally he arouses enough to chide back and so it has become an axiom that genius is not domestic a short period of mismated life told the wife of ruskin their mistake and she told him but mrs grundy was at the keyhole ready to tell the world and so mr and mrs ruskin sought to deceive society by pretending to live together they kept up this appearance for six sorrowful years and then the lady simplified the situation by packing her trunks and deliberately leaving her genius to his chimeras her soul doubtlessly softened by the knowledge that she was bestowing a benefit on him by going away the lady afterwards became the happy wife and helpmeet of a great artist ruskin's father was a prosperous importer of wines he left his son a fortune equal to a little more than one million dollars but that vast fortune has gone principal and interest gone in bequests gifts and experiments and today mr ruskin has no income save that derived from the sale of his books talk about distribution of wealth here we have it the bread and butter question has never troubled john ruskin except in his ever ardent desire that others should be fed his days have been given to study and writing from his very boyhood he has made money but he has had no time to save it he has expressed himself on every theme that interests mankind except perhaps housemaid's knee he has written more letters to the newspapers than old subscriber fiat justita indigent reader and veritas combined his opinions have carried much weight and directed attention into necessary lines but perhaps his success as an inspirer of thought lies in the fact that his sense of humor exists only as a trace as the chemist might say men who perceived the ridiculous would never have voiced many of the things which he has said surely those sioux indians who stretched a hay lariat across the united pacific railroad in order to stop the running of trains had small sense of the ridiculous but it looks as if they were apostles of ruskin every one someone has said that no man can appreciate the beautiful who has not a keen sense of humor for the beautiful is the harmonious and the laughable is the absence of fit judgment mr ruskin disproves the maxim but let no hasty soul imagine that john ruskin's opinions on practical themes are not useful he brings to bear an energy on every subject he touches and what subject has he not touched that is sure to make the sparks of thought fly his independent and fearless attitude awakens from slumber a deal of dozing intellect and out of this strife of opinion comes truth on account of mr ruskin's refusing at times to see visitors reports have gone abroad that his mind was giving way not so for although he is seventy-four he is as serenely stubborn as he ever was his opposition to new inventions and machinery has not relaxed a single pulley's turn you grant his premises and in his conclusions you will find that his belt never slips and that his logic never jumps a cog his life is as regular and exact as the trains on the great western and his days are more peaceful than ever before he has regular hours for writing study walking reading eating and working out of doors superintending the cultivation of his hundred acres he told me that he had not varied a half hour in two years from a certain time of going to bed or getting up in the morning although his form is bowed this regularity of life has borne fruit in the rich russet of his complexion the mild clear eye 
and the pleasure of living in spite of occasional pain, which you know the man feels. His hair is thick and nearly white. The beard is now worn quite long, and gives a patriarchal appearance to the fine face. When we arose to take our leave, Mr. Ruskin took a white felt hat from the elk antlers in the hallway, and a stout stick from the corner, and offered to show us a nearer way back to the village. We walked down a footpath through the tall grass to the lake, where he called our attention to various varieties of ferns that he had transplanted there. We shook hands with the old gentleman, and thanked him for the pleasure he had given us. He was still examining the ferns when we lifted our hats, and bade him good day. He evidently did not hear us, for I heard him mutter, I verily believe those miserable cook's tourists that were down here yesterday picked some of my ferns. End of John Ruskin, Part 2 Recording by Todd